When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wild Precious Life is supported in part by Story Studio Chicago, a writing center located in Chicago and online, which helps writers hone their craft, express their creativity, and tell their stories. Search for classes and find your creative community at storystudiochicago.org. And we're brought to you in part by Exile in Bookville, located in the historic Fine Arts Building on Chicago's Michigan Avenue. Come in and check out our recommended reads from talented booksellers, authors, and music folks from across the multiverse. At Exile in Bookville, we believe that books and music are synonymous and carry that over into our store. Drop by or shop online at exileinbookville.com. When was the first time you saw yourself in a book? I had a bright pink abridged copy of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, and I remember reading that story over and over again. I learned that the writing life was possible and there wasn't anything weird about scribbling in a journal or inventing stories. I also daydreamed about how when Teddy Lawrence, the boy next door, asked me to marry him, I'd say yes. That book was one of many that made me feel seen and understood. That's one of my favorite things a book can do. It can help you know you're not alone. However, I've come to realize that plenty of young readers did not grow up seeing themselves in books. For a long time, the publishing industry didn't work hard enough, not nearly hard enough, to put books in the hands of everyone, black kids and Muslim kids and indigenous kids and trans kids, and I could continue listing here. But my point is that not everyone grew up able to read about themselves in a book. I'm grateful this is beginning to change and we're seeing more and more books with diverse protagonists. It's becoming easier to find stories in which all kids see themselves reflected. But it's not enough to stop there. Just as books have helped me understand myself, I have also come to understand others that same way. A few years ago, I took a hard look at my shelves. I'd never noticed how the overwhelming majority of writers I read were also white women. It's nice to understand ourselves, but it's also part of our job on this planet to seek to understand others. Since then, I've started reading books from across perspectives, both in this country and around the world. This is an ongoing pursuit, and I know I'm better for it. There's a saying that's often attributed to Gandhi, which he may or may not have even said, we must be the change we want to see in this world. I think we can also read that change, too. Today's guest reminded me of that. James Kleiss's acclaimed novels for teens include the Edgar Award-winning The Art of Secrets and the ALA Stonewall Honor Award-winning Love Drugged. 
His newest book, I'll Take Everything You Have, is a queer coming-of-age crime novel set in 1930s Chicago. His shorter work has appeared in New Orleans Review, Story Quarterly, Southern Humanities Review, the Chicago Tribune, and elsewhere. He lives in Chicago and for the past two decades has overseen a very busy high school library. Jim Kleiss, welcome to Wild Precious Life. It is great to be here, Anne-Marie. Thank you. Uh, It is so good to see your face. I know our listeners can't, but I have a little video on, and it's just great to see you. You and I actually met in the before times. That's right. I took a brilliant writing class from you in Chicago. We were like a few paces into learning together, like I want to say weeks, and then the entire world shut down. But compared to a lot of the groups I was part of during the pandemic, like that sort of disappeared or like went away, um, our little group, that class stayed connected and became what felt to me like kind of a lifeline. We pandemic together, you know, we, we, we bought outdoor heaters and like baked bread. And I mean, we, we lost people and we put voice to like existential dread and I don't know. I just, I generally feel like you held my hand during a time. I, I barely knew you at that time, but I came to know you. And during that, you know, that year long class, I heard about this book you were writing and it is such a treat to see this book, baby, that you were drafting and revising and, you know, gnashing your teeth about sometimes. And then here it is, magically. It's just, it's so triumphant to see it. I'm just so ecstatic to talk to you about this book today. It's it's uh, it's great to hear you say that. And it's a reminder of one of the wonderful things about having writer friends is that you, you bear witness to the long process of creating a book and having it go through the editorial process and waiting, waiting and waiting for it to actually make its appearance in the world. So thank you for being on that journey with me. It's, it's, it's really fun to have it finally coming out. <laughs> well, I have the good fortune to know you and we've, we've hung out on Zoom and in person, but not every listener got a chance to pandemic with you and not everyone is going to necessarily yet be familiar with your great good work. So would you mind just telling us a little bit of your story? I became interested in writing when I was in high school and college and really fell in love with writing short stories and took, you know, creative writing workshops and got a master's degree in creative writing and really spent my 20s writing short stories and trying to publish them and you know, accumulated a shopping bag. I, I had a Marshall Field shopping bag filled with rejection slips, com- completely filled it, and about halfway through a second bag uh, before I, you know, got my first short story um, published. I, I think at the time I felt very singled out by God. Like, you, you know, need to suffer through this long journey of of um, waiting uh, and and to be published, but you know, the older I get and the more writers I become friends with, I realize it's the common, it's the story that everybody goes through, which is you try and you try and you try until suddenly you get some, some luck. And, you know, it's not just luck, it's building your skills and, and um, understanding the market better and understanding the way work stories work and all of those things. And I think that um, 
you know, in your introduction, you mentioned that I've got, you know, my third book is coming out now, but I was in my, you know, I was in my 40s before I first started publishing novels. It's a, it's a long road for just about every writer I know. And I think that's very typical. I do think there's something about my journey that's less common. I think it might even be unique, which is that, so I'm, I'm the, I grew up in Peoria, Illinois. I'm the youngest in a big family. I have five older sisters and they're all wonderful writers. And, you know, they're great email writers. We have this email chain that continues every day and they're great storytellers. But several of us have pursued writing and publishing as a career. My, my oldest sister, Elizabeth, is a poet and has published widely and has a book of uh, a children's book in verse that's out. My Two of my middle sisters have um, written and illustrated dozens of award-winning middle grade books. And then there's me. And um, for a, a family, a middle-class family from Peoria, Illinois, to all be pursuing writing, I think, is unusual. And I, I feel very lucky to have writing role models in my in my own family. Yeah. What do you think it was? I mean... I grew up in Medina, Ohio, 44256, and I knew zero <laughs> writers, except there was a cartoonist who wrote Calvin and Hobbes who would sometimes come through, right? And I should remember his name. Mm -hmm. And it's like on the tip. What's that guy's name? I don't know. I'll put it in the show notes. But that was the equivalent of the only person I knew in the world who wrote, and he wrote cartoons. So did you know writers, or did you even know that was a job you could have? How did you guys pick that? So- I have an answer for that, um, and I think actually, if you were sitting here talking to my sisters, they'd, we'd all have different answers for for why it happened for us. But I'm going to tell the story that I think is the truest answer to it, and I think also the the most interesting story. And it also I like it because it gives me a chance to talk about my parents. But in the 1960s, my parents started a company, and Anne Marie, I, I'm not, I don't want to assume your age, but do you remember? <laughs> do you remember film strips? <laughs> Do you remember? Shut up. I remember film strips. Do you remember the one about the the lady with the vinegar bottle? Doodly doodle, doodly do. She lived in a vinegar bottle. <laughs> Not only do I remember no. film strips, I remember that ours was crooked and we had to use a book in the library to get it just uh -huh. right. So, yes, I remember film strips. <laughs> so my parents in the in mid-1960s started a film strip, an educational film strip company. They were a Catholic, we were Catholic, we, I was raised Catholic, and they were one of those Catholic couples that were very inspired by Vatican II in the early 60s and sort of the church's recommitment to social justice and civil rights. And they thought, my mom had a teaching background and my dad had a broadcasting background. And they must have thought, like, this is a way that we can sort of engage in sort of this, this renewed energy and renewed purpose of, you know, Catholic life. And so they, they, they first, for the, probably the mid-60s to the 1970, they were producing film strips about sacraments and about parts of the Mass and about what it means to be a Catholic, you know, living in modern times. And they sold really, really well. And my dad was, was, you know, my mom was home raising six kids. So my dad was the one doing a lot of the work and he would do the research and he would write them and he would record the record album that would go with the film strips. And his other great passion was literature. And so he started doing film strips about American authors. And 
he, so as a family, we would go, because he would do the photography for these film strips. And we went to Emily Dickinson's house and Mark Twain's house and uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's house. And we went to Walden Pond and went to Thoreau's house. And we went to Hawthorne's house. And then he did a British lit series. So we went and spent a summer in England and we went to Jane Austen's house and Dickens' house and Shakespeare's house. And we went to William Wordsworth's house and Coleridge. I mean, we went, we went to the Parsonage where the Brontes lived. And he had a list for every author house he would visit of things that he would want to photograph. He would always want to photograph the outside of their house. And if, you know, if it was a writer's museum, they would usually have like the author's desk and he would photograph the desk and maybe try to get a view out the window to try to capture what, the, what they were thinking about. And we would go on these trips with him and we would be standing around, probably bored out of our minds. <laughs> but we were staring at like their, the author's beds and their sort of their chamber pots, right? They, I felt like I got to know so many people I mean, it was years later, right, that I'd be sitting in a high school class and the teacher would hand me the scarlet letter and I'd think to myself, I've been to his house before, right? Or my, um, you know, when we'd read Emily Dickinson, I'd think, I think my sister got bit by a dog in front of this house, in front of Emily Dickinson's house. Like, it was such a, I mean, the, I, don't, I can't speak for my sisters, but for for I'm sure the message to all of us was that these were people, right? They were people who slept in little beds and had, you know, they weren't special people. They were just people who chose to explore what it means to be alive through words and poems and stories. And, and that, to me, I think was really, really helpful. It's why author visits are really helpful in schools, right? Because to have you know, Kwame Alexander walk into the, into the church gymnasium and, and talk about his process and talk about how he became a writer. I sometimes think, I mean, Anne-Marie, what if you and I could take our students to Jackie Woodson's house or Meg Medina's oh house or, um, I mean, Laurie Hulse Anderson's house? We would generate so many more writers um, if they could get to know the people behind the books they read and love so much. So... That is, I mean, that says so much about my parents and, you know, what their priorities were. But um, I'm sure that gave all of us permission to try, right? If these other people did it and made lives around books and, and uh, making books, that we certainly had permission to do that. That is gorgeous. That's the best story about film strips I have ever heard in my entire life. I had forgotten that there was a record that you put on because the thing didn't have sound. It was just pictures. And so you put the record on and it timed with the record and it flipped. Oh, my gosh. My parents were the first people to put the record with the film strip. That was their big innovation. Oh, yeah. And I'm fairly certain I saw at least that Emily Dickinson one. That's ringing some bells for me. (laughs) But how amazing is it that you guys didn't even know that you were envisioning the lives of writers as possibilities when you were sitting there petting dogs outside of Emily Dickinson house or that's um, right. running around looking at chamber pots that even when you don't know that it's seeping in that, that imagining, well, I went um, again in the before times I went and heard Pat Cummings, the great children's book author and illustrator speak 
And she had that quote that I've heard since then, but she talked about every child. Every child should be able to find themselves in the pages of a book. So I understand that you found yourself, without realizing it, in the lives of writers. Um, As we've established, we're about the same age. You know, what books, I guess, or did you find yourself in the pages of books growing up? I mean, I probably didn't really find myself in books until I was much older. But I will tell you what I loved about reading when I was a kid. I had choices. You know, the kids I grew up with did not have many choices in our lives. We wore school uniforms. Uh, we played with the other children in our parish or on our block, right? Um, nobody, not even once in my childhood, did anybody ask, what do you want for dinner? <laughs> like, that was just not something that kids our generation were asked, right? You ate what was served. Um, and that's, I mean, I guess this is something, this is a thing about being part of a big family is that you just kind of learn to go with the flow, right? That's the only way the system works. But my reading life it definitely gave me choices. And I loved that aspect. We went to the library every week and my mom would just kind of let us loose to pick out books. And I mean, I, I loved reading books by Scott Corbett and, um, Bertrand Brindley, who did the Mad Scientist Club, which was, he did a whole series of books about um, these kids doing scientific experiments. I loved the Aenid Blyton books, um, which was a series of British mysteries about, um, there was a, there were several series she did, the, the Famous Five and the Secret Seven. Um, later, I became really like in sixth, seventh grade, I became attached to Paul Zindel. I don't know if it's Zindel or Zindel, but he did The, the Pig, Pig Man. Yeah. God, I was obsessed with The Pig Man and Confessions of a Teenage Baboon. He did a bunch. Um, and then there was, I had an absolute, my family, I mean, I was notorious, my family. I was obsessed with Shirley Jackson um, and her her books. And then in high school, I probably, like you, got into really moody stuff like Sylvia Plath and, oh, yeah. the you know, jar. Judith Guest's Ordinary People was a book I kept very close to me. Uh, for a few, I had seen the movie, and then there was something about the sort of the—I don't know what that, that what that family was going through that really spoke to me. My father had passed away when I was pretty young, and we didn't really talk about it too much as we did, you know, in the '70s. And that book, I felt, I was getting closer to what I was I was feeling, and I really really appreciated it. How about you? What were yours? Judith Guest's Ordinary People. I too came to that book. As a teenager, I had also seen the movie, first off, Mary Tyler Moore as a kind of villain that knocked, like, knocked me back on my heels. And and that that book, making, um, gosh, making things that were family secrets, like bringing them out into the open, that is something that I've been obsessed with, I mean, truly, my whole life. My grandfather died of suicide when I was in fifth or sixth grade, and no one ever talked to us about it. And my mom was just sad and covered it up. And like, all we learned later that was she probably went to hell. And like, like, but it was this family secret for the longest time. And that kind of trauma intergenerationally, like I saw what it did in my family. And something about that book, I actually reread that book 
after my own father passed away during the pandemic. There is there is something about that book that was just so hauntingly beautiful. Anytime a book like spoke to your truth, you know, like I I wasn't a child in 1930s London, but I took ballet classes. And so Noel Streetfield's ballet shoes, you know, spoke to me. You know, I wasn't right. a kid. I wasn't a kid growing up up on New Jersey, like I don't know, like asking God if I should be Jewish or Christian, but I did stuff my bra and play spin the bottle. And so Judy Bloom's Are You There Got It's Me, Margaret spoke to me. So even when I didn't think a book would 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 appeal to me, I could always like latch on to a character and walk with them for a time. And um that's always been one of my favorite things about about reading, right? Is when you can be surprised that and discover a part of yourself you didn't even really know that anybody else knew about because you'd never said it out That's loud. Right. And there it is in the book. Yeah. Oh. Well, Absolutely. I know you're a, you're a teacher librarian now there in Chicago. I mean, how do you help That's right. your own students find themselves in books? Well, that's the job, isn't it? That's And uh, I mean, it's never been easier. I, I work at a, this remarkable high school. We have a probably an incredibly diverse uh, student body. Um, and, you know, when I started 20 years ago, it, it was more challenging me for me to find books that uh, represented their experience or, or that might mirror their experience. It's much easier now. And so part of the way that I do that is through collection development. And part of the way I do it is through collaborating with teachers. You know, when a teacher comes to me and says, oh, we've got some extra time in this unit and I want to squeeze in a couple short stories. You know, can you help me find some short stories? about, you know, identity or about um, transformation or whatever their, whatever the theme of that unit is. And I'll go and I'll try to find short stories that, help, you know, might represent some of the student voices uh, in that class. Um, so, you know, that's, it is the job to do. But the thing that amazes me about sort of working in education now is that I run a, I run a student book club and we, you know, it, it's actually a really it's a popular club. Students have to apply to get in, and we have a waiting list. And, and uh, you know, the kids keep the, get, keep the books that they read, which is exciting. And we try to have one of the authors visit every year. It's, it's, it's a pretty special thing. And because of the demographics of my school, I'm always really careful when I'm coming up with the lineup of books that we're going to be reading that year. I make sure that we include books that will represent all the different experiences. And given all of these efforts that will you know, take place both in my library and in classrooms around the building and, and just in schools all over the place. Um, you know, we'll read a book and, you know, let's say the main character is, you know, gay or is trans or is Muslim or is whatever, whatever sort of is, is whoever story is being represented. You know, at the book club meeting, I'll say, you know, we'll be talking about the book and I might say, so is this for anybody in this group? Is it the first time you've ever read a book that has a main character who is, you know, fill in the blank? And so many hands will go up, like, the, and they'll say, "This is the first time I've ever read a book where the main character is fill in the blank." And that blows my mind. That um, despite all of our best efforts and hard work and and real conscientious um, choices that we make as educators. To, to provide the whole range of, of experience in, in sort of class readings and in the libraries and in, um, 
it happens again and again that we have students who are like, I've actually, I've never read a book that had a main character like this before. And that just, it's a reminder to me every time that, okay, yeah, this work is really important and this work continues and you can never get lazy about it because um, as soon as you do, you're going to, you're going to have students who graduate from high school and will never have maybe had the opportunity, not just to read a book, but to be in a group of people who are all talking about it, which is, um, which is really meaningful. I love that you do that. And I, we are friends on one of the social medias. So I have seen pictures of your kids and the book club and, and had no idea that they get to keep the books and there's a application process. That's amazing. That makes it seem just, I don't know, like you're doing something right there. It's unusual to have a high school book club. And when people, you know, I'll meet other educators who say, I really want to do that, you know, but we have, our high school doesn't have a book club and it's really hard to get, it's unusual, right, to do that. And my main advice is get a, you know, fill out a donor's choose grant or find the funding elsewhere. Because if you give a young person a book to keep and say like, listen, Anne-Marie, I'm going to give you this book and it's going to live on your shelf, it, they, it, they will read it, right? They, nothing gives students more motive to read than to give them the book and say, this is going to live on your bookshelf and home and be part of your own library of books. Um, for me, that has been um, a great motivator to get kids to read books that, they, that might not be in their normal wheelhouse of what they would choose for themselves. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. So for folks who haven't read it yet, we meet Joe. He's this young guy. He's working in the city, and he's meeting other boys. So he meets, you know, Eddie, the liquor delivery man, who is just yummy and he meets he meets Raymond at the the French class where um Joe has a job to take notes on the French class to see who's coming and going cuz there's a guy who wants to rob him and and like he's 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 exploring you know first kisses and and the city I love how you talk about Chicago cuz when I have fallen in love with cities it's like when you find where you're going to get your coffee in the morning or when you find those paths or when you like I remember living in in Charleston, South Carolina, and I had seen the seasons go through. I was like, oh, that plant always does that on that corner, or this is the local shortcut, or just when you feel when you feel like a regular. And so Joe's in this wonderful time where he's he's falling in love with himself. He's falling in love with these boys. He's falling in love with 
with Chicago. I I mean, I felt breathless and young and flirty in this time with these characters. It's beautiful. That's great. I'm I'm happy that it that it conveys that that sense of excitement and just joy of being young. I mean, I was working on this during the pandemic when I was stuck at home and you know, I, I was drawn to a narrative of somebody feeling free and and going out and knocking on doors and and taking risks and feeling joy, right? That's for me that was a great motivator to every day return to this manuscript and work on it. It was a gift. Yeah. There's a there's a great scene where um Joe and Eddie go up to the top floor of a building. It's a hotel they're not staying in, but they go to the end of the hallway and share this like, you know, a bag of candy. They're they're eating taffy and they're watching the world's fair. I mean, that the time period which that you've set this in is actually fraught with with other stories. So like there there's this gorgeous they're having this this kind of, you know, fumbling date in the darkness looking at the world's fair spread out because you get the what is the centuries of progress, all those architectural all those skyscrapers that they built just just, you know, that was kind of an illusion, right? They weren't skyscrapers that exist in Chicago today. So that I was thinking about he's with a boy in the darkness looking out over what is possible. Um, but they're also in the dark and they're also looking at something that isn't real and they're also not there. I thought it was so interesting that they weren't there. They didn't go to the World's Fair. They only saw it from afar. So there is this like beautiful fumbling. And I think anybody who's gone through this coming of age is you're not there yet. You know, you're on your way someplace, but you're not there yet. You haven't like in the Velveteen Rabbit sense of the world word, you haven't become yet. And so we're there with Joe as he's becoming, as he's unfurling, as he's making mistakes, you know, kissing someone you shouldn't or, you know, oh, it's such a, it's just a great time that you've said it in as well. Thanks. I appreciate that. I mean, I'm fascinated by that particular time in history, in Chicago history, you know, 19, it takes place in 1934, very specifically for a reason. I mean, for, for queer people, I, I mean, I think a lot of the young people I know, they think that gay life, gay visibility started with the Stonewall riots and then moved through the 70s. And then with HIV and AIDS, there was this new visibility for queer people, which is true. It was absolutely true. But they forget that there have been other times through history where queer people formed communities and found ways to be visible. Um, And so in New York and in Berlin and in Chicago and in many other cities in the late 20s and early 30s, there was that sense of promise that you could go to a new city and 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 if you were someone young and closeted but curious like Joe, you could see that um, that there was a community for you out there that there that there would be a future for you if you could get there if you could you know Joe is in Chicago very temporarily. Uh, to earn money for his family farm. The expectation is that he will return home. He's the only son of a widowed farmer. And uh, so his expectation is that I got to earn some money and then I'm going to go back home. Um, But this trip, this visit to Chicago teaches him that, you know, there is a community. There are, he, he will form this sort of 
what he calls a syndicate. He will form this network of people that will support him through life if he can get to Chicago, right, to, and build a life there. But at the end of 1934, Chicago's mayor, a guy named Edward Joseph Kelly, who was mayor of Chicago for a long time, over 10 years, maybe 15 years, he had run on this platform of, of sort of cleaning up the vice and corruption. And so at the end of 1934, he closed down every queer space that he could find. Um, and and this, was, this was part of a national effort to, to do it. And so there are references throughout the book of the fact that the mayor has, has sort of promised that he's going to do this. And so there's a, there's a bit of a ticking clock. Is, as the moment that Joe arrives, one of the first things he learns is that this may be temporary. Like, we may not have this much longer. The book definitely goes to some dark places in, in a way that I think is thrilling, not necessarily depressing, but is that makes it a page turner. Um, and, and I think it leaves the reader with a very hopeful feeling of what, what is possible for, for young people in, in Joe's situation. Um, but it, yeah, I'm glad that I, I, I tried to foreground the, the, the fun of the, of sort of, everything that could be had in a big city, um, especially a city like Chicago uh, back then. Yeah, no, both of those worlds are alive for me, both both Joe's internal world about like, oh, there are others like me, and this external world where he's seeing them and experiencing them. And also this internal world where like, am I going to disappoint my family if I if I don't bring this money back? And, and, and I, I see the external world of, and is it all going to go away? Because, I mean, as you said, there are, this is this is, this is not a cotton candy book. There are dark storylines and there are dark um, undercurrents alongside of this delight and hope. You know, like when Joe and Raymond talk about the future, I mean, sometimes they see the promise of the syndicate. Sometimes they see the promise of there are others like us. We'll just find each other and we will go and live. And I mean, I know stories of Boys Town and Chicago. I, I know that there are places, I know that's out there, but it's not there yet in 1934. And so sometimes they stand together and they see the promise of this. And other times, um, you know, Joe's surprised when Raymond says, you know, I, I'm probably going to join the priesthood or I'm going to get married. And first off, those seem not just mutually exclusive, but those are two different paths. And neither of them is finding a community that's just just like us, but you know, Raymond says, uh, "quote I intend to be married. It's what's expected, and it will keep us safe from those rumors we'll need to avoid." Ah, uh, I mean, this his matter of factness, both about when he talks about going to, like, you know, closeting himself in religion and um, hiding within a marriage. His matter of factness was just was really heartbreaking because it I knew it to be true and I knew there was a lot of a lot of space between 1934 where I'm meeting these boys and and our world today when options are more much different that that they're not going to live long enough to see what I and what you see so there was some heartbreak in when when Raymond didn't think that a syndicate or a, or a you know a group of of guys together was possible certainly yeah, I think that Raymond's point of view, it's, I think it was established, it was important for me to establish that for many young men 
at that time. Uh, you know, for young, young readers today bring a completely different set of expectations, right? Uh, especially queer readers would bring a completely different set of expectations for what's possible in their life. And I worked really hard to make sure that they understood that for teens in 1934, first of all, this is not going to be a coming out narrative because that that just never happened back then, right? It, it there is no, you know, there are there are a lot of wonderful books that are out there for teens right now that sort of explore that really major headline for a lot of queer kids, like what is it like to come out? When is the right time to come out? Well, for kids in 1934, the expectation would be that, well, you just never will. Like, you'll just, you'll either get married or you'll move far, far away from your family and just live a separate life. You're never going to have that awkward conversation about, you know, hey, mom and dad, my life is going to be, in some significant way, is going to be a little different than yours. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, this is... And this is, I think, one of the hardest things about writing this book was I had to make sure that I didn't present it, that Joe thought, I'm going to fall in love and form a long-term relationship with one of these people because that would not have been, in, you know, Joe's expectation for his life. And I wanted the different characters to talk about what their expectations might be. Um, I mean, there are, you know, you can go to the library and find really great accounts of queer couples through history who find each other but and, and made lives together and shared homes together. But almost exclusively, they were people of enormous privilege. They were people who were, you know, if they were living in England, they, you know, they, they, they inherited a title and had sort of independence. Um, they were people who had lots of money um, or they were people who became sort of well-known artists who were able to sort of make their own rules. But for, for most people, and especially for um, working class people like Joe, like farmers or like Eddie, who's, as you said, his dad is a liquor distributor, they just would have not have seen what was possible. Um, the expectation again would be that they would get married. So um, that is, it does, it is heartbreaking. It's, it's a bit easier for us to tolerate now to, to, to read about because we, we see what has happened, right? And we have seen how things have opened up. Um, but we, we don't take it for granted, right? Well, you do a really good jo job of putting this in history, but also having the answers be both historical and resonant in a way that gives me hope and understanding. So when Ray Raymond and Joe are, you know, fooling around, um, Joe asks like this this question that I remember, you know, do you think God will punish us? And again, I remember as a again, a cis hetero kid like doing things I wasn't supposed to do and wondering like is it am I going against God? And there's lots of things I could say about Raymond. He's a wonderfully complex character, but I really 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 love the answer he gives Joe because historically it could have been easy for someone to tell Joe, yeah, yeah, because that might be an historical belief. But but Raymond's answer is so glorious. He says, punish us for this? Honestly, I think God will reward us. After putting us through something difficult as this, I never asked for my lavender heart, did you? That was God's choice. Same as my eyes are the color of my hair. I love that answer. I love that it gives us 
a chance to take a peek of history at history. But also, I imagine this book finding it its way into the hands of kids who are asking that question still today, who are wondering about that still today. Am I a, am I a normal kid? Am I going to be in trouble for feeling this way? And and here's this book that in their minds is from 1934. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> right? that's what kids right. do. They're like, oh, it takes place in 1934. It must have been written along. And they'll and this book is telling them yes. It's saying yes to the beautiful wonderfulness of them in whatever color or stripe or sexuality it finds them that you do have them encounter these difficult historical um, situations, but you also give them an answer that makes sense to us here now and gives hope um, to kids who, yeah, these are working class. It's, Joe's a working class kid. There's not a whole lot of reason for him to feel hope, but I see it there. Right. Well, we always close with some fan favorites, just quick questions to get another view of the fellow behind the books. Uh, you ready for the wind down here? That sounds great. All right. These are just multiple choice. You just pick pick one. Uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. Mountains or beach? Oh, I'm going to say neither. Can I say city streets instead? I'm... Absolutely. Henry, don't tell anybody. I'm not a huge fan of nature. I don't like <laughs> nature. But I love exploring cities. And so I would choose a city street. I love it. I won't tell anyone. Your secret's safe Okay, good. This is a safe space. Um, Dogs or cats? I'm allergic to cats, but but I love cats. So I'm going to say cats. Nice. Um, Chicago or Paris? Well, Paris. I mean, wait, why did I say Paris? Chicago. (laughs) Chicago by far. I was going to say, my my mind is racing with that question because my husband and I are going to Paris in about a month for for spring break. Um, But- no, city. Uh, Chicago is the city of my heart. I, l- I love Chicago. All right. Well, I won't tell Paris you said that. Oh, <laughs> you can tell Paris. <laughs> they know why. Um, the Great Gatsby or Catcher in the Rye? The Great Gatsby. Yeah, I, th- I thought as much. Oh, this has three choices. Okay, these are 1930s expressions. Which one is your favorite? The word golly, the word swell, <laughs> or the word Jake? Oh, those are all great, aren't they? Uh, I have to say golly. I think I walk around my life in a perpetual state of golly. So uh, golly. <laughs> I love it. I'm wishing you lots of golly. That's very Jake. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> are you an early bird or a night owl? Oh, early bird. I couldn't work in a high school if I wasn't an early bird. Yeah, you have to. I am hardwired to get up bright and early. <laughs> that is helpful. The kids aren't always. No. High school should probably start around noon. 100% agree. Are you a risk taker or the person who always knows where the band-aids are? I always know where the band-aids are, but in writing, I don't think you can be a writer without being a risk taker. It is such a risk every time you set out on writing a novel. And really, the, one of the greatest pieces of writing advice I ever got came from Sheila Kohler, who's a wonderful novelist, and she was a teacher of mine at Bennington. And we had worked together for a whole semester, and at the end I said, uh, she, she was just so encouraging and supportive and... And uh, I said, what, like, do you have any advice for me? And she said, she, had a, she has a wonderful South African accent, and I can't imitate it. But she said, I think that you could take more risks in your fiction. And I think that's such good advice. And I've really, I, I think about it all the time, about taking risks in writing. It's so important because my tendency is always to, like, 
fix it before the scene is over. And I've definitely had similar feedback where a professor was like, oh, they're so nice to each other. What? That's yes. just so, they're <laughs> such role models. Have one of them punch somebody. Why, why should he rip that yep. shirt off of his, like, she was just, she's like, this is, this is great. We should all aspire to it, but it's boring. Set something on fire. So, right. <laughs> um, well, I saw lots of risks in, in this book. And again, folks should read it because there's, there's some, lots of page turning. Um, hey, a few fill in the blanks here then. So, uh, if you weren't working as a, uh, a teacher, librarian, what would you be? So I'm going to say, this is an, exam- uh, an answer I've given before. Uh, I would love, love, love to be an art conservator. I would love to sit in a room with an old painting and my tools and listening to podcasts or NPR and be clean- spend the whole day cleaning, cleaning artwork. Wouldn't that be so rewarding? Oh, my gosh. I've never thought of that job. See, I think I'm going to say a film strip creator because I just want to go take <laughs> pictures of Emily Dickinson's chamber pot now. But art yep. conserva- I guess they're, they're similar. They're similar veins. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> what's something else quirky that folks don't always know about you? A like or a love or a pet peeve hmm. or... Oh, my pet peeve, and this comes up a lot in my line of work. I don't like high fives. Students are always wanting to high-five me, and I just keep my arms folded and say, I don't do that. I don't. I'm not a big fan of the high-five. I, when I, when I have high-fived, and I feel like a faker when I do it. It's just not my authentic form of expression. All right. I don't think I've ever high I don't think I've ever high-fived you. No way. I, we have not. I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say I go around high-fiving, but I've never thought to, like, be against it, to, like, do you just not like the the smack? It hurts your hand. It makes me uncomfortable. Or it's like this, not. No, no. I just feel like I, I feel like it's something that like jocks do. Like, oh yeah, cool, yeah. we did it. I just it's like not my. I'm a different species. I don't All high right. five. Duly noted. I love this. Uh, what's what's one of your favorite books? Well, that question. Um, I know it's mean. We could go back and do the only this for the whole show. <laughs> You could say some of your favorite books. I- I'll give you some authors that whenever they have a book come out, I run to them. So Peter Cameron, Sarah Waters, uh, Laurie Moore has a new book coming out in May that I can't wait to read. Uh, Rebecca Mackay's got a new book coming out this month that I can't wait to read. Um, I mean, so many, right? It's so many books. Do you ever reread books or are you always thinking about how there's no time? I've got so many books new books. I, I had a friend chastise me once because I was rereading something. And he's like, have you been to the Library of Congress? Do you understand? You'll never get through it. You can't. And that's just that's the ones that are made and you can see. You can't reread the books. I am a rereader, but I don't know. Are you? I don't often reread books, but, you know, when you get stuck as a writer and when you have setbacks as a writer and when you have... Um, I don't know when you're when you're when the when it's not going well. I find that rereading books that I love, even if it's just passages from them, will sort of get my get my systems in order again and get me excited about you know what it is I'm trying to do. So I'll reread in those situations. Yeah, I'll go visit sentences. Like, how did she say that? What was? Look at it's all one sentence. Let me try that. I. I too will go back to a book for for craft advice. 
Um, what's a favorite uh, movie or even television show? Oh, favorite movie. Again, what an impossible question, right? Right. Um, for a long time, I would say that my favorite movie is City Lights, the Charlie Chaplin film, um, because it's just so hilarious and so silly and so genius. And then there's that last three minutes of it that just are so transcendingly beautiful and moving um, that if you've never seen City Lights, it's worth watching. I'm going to link to that. I You said Charlie Chaplin movie, and I pictured you know a certain kind of film, but those last three minutes of transcendence, I... That's not. I'm not calling it to mind, so I'm going to give myself a homework assignment. <gasps> Have you never seen it? Well, I thought you said Charlie Chaplin movie. I feel like I I know you know there's walking on this and there's pianos out windows, but but the last three minutes of something. I don't. I'm going to go right now after this and look. I'll report. Do you back. remember the do you, the the main idea? And I won't spoil anything here, but the main idea is that Charlie Chaplin, you know, is in his tramp mode and he's he's on the street and he um he encounters this beautiful young woman who's blind and she's selling flowers and he buys a flower from her with a, you know, a coin that he finds on the street and they become close. And she says, you know, if only I could afford this surgery to get, you know, to fix my eyes, I would, you know, I might have a chance at a happy life. And he says, well, oh, I forgot about, I mean, she thinks he's a wealthy gentleman. So he's he sort of has presented to himself to her as this sort of wealthy man. And um, he says, well, I'll, I'll, pay, I'll pay for your surgery, right? And so the, most of the movie is him going through these outrageous efforts to get the money to, you know, entering a boxing match, you know, like to, to win the money to, to, to help her. Um, and the way that the movie ends is just... It's just brilliant. And and Charlie Chaplin, he wrote it, he directed it, he started it, he composed the music. I mean, he just was incredible. Worth watching if you've never I'm seen it. I'm so excited. We I'll link to that. I bet we can find it out there on YouTube too. Oh, all right. Last two. What's your favorite ice cream or dessert? Oh, favorite ice cream is probably salted caramel. But it changes, right? It changes by the season. Uh, I, I'm a big ice cream fan, so I like strawberry ice cream in the summertime and yeah chocolate sometimes too uh last one if we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love what would we see oh uh it probably um, you know i mentioned before i'm the youngest in a big family and my sisters are spread out all around the country in california and connecticut and lisbon portugal and new york city and um and we get together sort of Christmas is is sort of sacred for us. We always get together uh, at at Christmas time, and so um, probably with my with our my sisters and our extended families and our spouses and the next generation, um, the holidays are a very happy time for me. So I would probably it'd probably be a picture of me at, during the holidays. I love that. Well, Jim Jim Pro- Kleist, thank probably you. not a very original answer, but no, yeah. I love I love the that picture of of warmth. The holidays are not happy for for everyone, so uh, it's actually that's that's wonderful that you guys have that. Jim uh, Kleist, thank you so much for making time today. 
thank you so much for the opportunity just to talk about writing and talk about the book. I really appreciate it, Anne-Marie. Well, I know we're catching you amid the fanfare and excitement of promoting this new book. And I know it's exciting, but I know it also can feel like people are asking you the same questions again and again. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you for coming to them with at least the um, the illusion of, of fresh ears and eyes. Um, and in um, in the acknowledgments of I'll take everything you have, you, you wrote a thank you to... Um, you know, the, the welcoming queer spaces of your youth. And I can envision countless young queer and questioning teens thanking you in their future acknowledgements for always creating such a welcoming space within the covers of your books. So thank you. Oh, thanks for that, Emery. It's so nice. Um, folks, James Kleiss's latest book is entitled I'll Take Everything You Have. Look for it at your local library, your indie bookstore. It is so worth reading and to everyone listening we are wishing you love and light wherever the day takes you be good to yourself be good to one another and we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey to everyone listening we are wishing you love and light wherever the day takes you be good to yourself be good to one another and we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey wild precious life is a production of evergreen podcasts Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya, producer Sarah Wilgrube, and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.